You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Life Spa Podcast. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and today we have a really special guest. He's an investigative journalist, anthropologist. His name is Scott Carney. His most recent book called The Wedge, which I highly recommend that you guys read. He's written some other amazing books, one called The Enlightenment Trap, The Red Market, and his New York Times bestseller called um, What Doesn't Kill You. And uh, that was uh, his journey into understanding uh, Wim Hof, the Iceman. And um, Scott has been uh, uh, an investigative journalist. He wrote for Wired, Men's Journal, Discover, Outside, Mother Jones. He's an award-winning journalist. Um, some of the stuff he's written about, he, he personally takes himself through some pretty amazing experiences to actually prove some phenomenal, um, some of the phenomenal potential we have as human beings. And, and his premise today is going to be that um, how, the, how, how the environment and training in the environment and exposure can be maybe even more important than just diet and exercise. Understanding that we've been insulated for so long in, cold, in warm houses and warm cars and, and eating you know, the perfect diet that uh, it's actually weakened us in a way. And Scott's gonna, you know, investigated this and, and proven it with his own body. Scott, welcome, I'm so happy to have you here. You know, I'm a big fan of Wim Hof's. I, I, I read your book when it first came out and it was the first time I heard of Wim Hof and I was so blown away to hear your story and what you did with him. And you were like the, maybe yeah, in, in his first class, right? That he ever offered, is that right? Yeah, uh, and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, yeah, that's right. I first met Wim Hof uh, back in 2011 uh, after I'd just written a book called The Enlightenment Trap, where I traced the journeys of people who went on these very intense spiritual uh, you know, expeditions and went crazy or in some cases even died. And I had heard about Wim because he was this crazy Dutch guy on sitting naked on an iceberg somewhere saying that anyone could be immune to the cold and he could teach you to do it too. And I thought, that dude was nuts and he was gonna get people killed just like I'd seen a lot of people getting killed uh, doing crazy things like this before. Uh, so I went out to, to essentially to debunk him as a charlatan guru because honestly the world is full of charlatan gurus. Uh, and I had this commission for, from Playboy to go do this. And you know, the, 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 the long story short is that you know, as an investigative journalist, I don't just go there knowing what I'm going to write. I might have an assumption, but I'm going to give someone a fair shot. And so I tried his method, which is essentially um, an intensive breathing routine and then cold exposure. Uh, and I did that for a, a, for a week with him. And I was able to do the same things that he was in almost no time because his method works very, very quickly. And uh, you know, it just totally blew my mind. It changed the, my life from there on out where I really saw this incredibly positive and powerful um, meditation, which is not the sort of meditation where you usually think, you know, some yogi in like a cross-legged position with their hands up meditating. Um, 
Wim Hof's meditation was immersing yourself in a stressful environment and then going deep inside yourself to control how you react to that environment. So it was a physical meditation uh, and it had some very profound uh, effects on you know, my health and also the health of what is now probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And yeah, I was really fortunate. It was the very first training session he ever did formally. And there were just three people in that, in that group. Unbelievable for you to be there in, in the early days of his phenomenon. I just think, you know, what's so amazing about, about Wim Hof was that, you know, first of all, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. You know, the rules of breathing and Ayurveda and being a yogi in India, all the information is so sacred and so um, held so tightly to the chest that they don't actually want to share it. I studied Ayurvedic medicine in India and I, would, I, I had a handful of teachers and you reach a certain point where they're just not going to teach you anything anymore because they're afraid that they would, you would steal it and the knowledge was just so so sacred. But right. women just took, take, took the knowledge and just he just blasted out there you know, in a way free of charge, really, in such an innocent, clean way. And I just think it's such a, a refreshing uh, wake up call for, you know, getting the knowledge out, which I, I was involved in, in when I first got into Ayurveda, I was constantly being told I shouldn't teach so much and give away so much and you should charge for it. And our whole business model at LifeSpot is to basically give the knowledge away for free. We write all of our articles for free. And then you know, people will figure out we have a store down the road, but the whole point is to give it away. And I was so, it was so refreshing to see his approach. And um, tell us a little about your, your journey um, uh, up to uh, Kilimanjaro. All right. Well, one thing about what you just said, yeah, I mean, some people say that, that Wim Hof is like this, this cold guru that he's like, and they almost say that he invented it. And I think that you may raise a very good point. People have been doing this type of stuff for thousands of years, right? I mean, there are, you know, if you go to the yoga sutras, there's people who are doing the same thing he's doing. The, the monks in Tibet uh, the, who do Tumo, uh, which is the Tibetan version, do something remarkably similar to what Wim Hof does, although they get into it in a sort of a different way. Uh, and, you know, Wim Hof was not the inventor of any of this, but he is probably the world's best and most prominent um, distributor of this information. And he makes it very, very accessible. And he's really opened the door to this sort of cold therapy and, and breath work in a way that really no one else has, uh, at least not in the last 50 years. Um, you know, there were movements doing cold and breathing in the 40s and the 20s and the 10s and in the 1800s where people were using cold water immersion normally. But it sort of died out. Um, you know, by the 70s, it had mostly died out until sort of whim helped resurrect it. Uh, and in terms of Kilimanjaro, yeah, so in my book, What Doesn't Kill Us, I... Uh, you know, I, I didn't only do whim, I wanted to understand some of the underlying principles of what cold exposure was all about. How, you know, who are the other people doing cold exposure? And what would happen if I did Wim Hof's method every day for a year, and then also did some things like run around the, you know, the, the my lake in, in Denver every day during the winter bare chested, you know, doing the, these sorts of things, how would my body change? So I had like sort of some baseline studies done at the beginning of the book, and then I did some studies at the end of the book, but I sort of built up to this really, really big event where I hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro with Wim. Uh, and, uh, you know, Wim wanted to 
to get to the top of it. And of course, I'm going to be shirtless, um, but he wanted to do it fast. Like he wanted to, you know, usually it takes about three days to get to the top of Kilimanjaro and a few days to get down because not because it's a difficult hike, you know, one foot in front of the other. There's no ropes or ice axes or anything, but you ascend so quickly that a lot of people get altitude sickness. Like many, many people die. And when, when I told the US Army um, environmental unit, as well as the Dutch Mountaineering Association, how fast we were gonna do it, which was 30 hours, uh, they basically said we were all gonna die in our group. And there were 30 or I think 28 people in our group. Um, but we did it anyway. Um, and, and what we were doing is we were doing Wim Hof's breath work, which is essentially hyperventilating you know, we can go over the specifics later, but it's essentially really rapid breathing. And we kept up this, this rapid breathing protocol uh, from the base of the mountain all the way to the top. And then Wim, uh, me and one other person summited, well, we went to a, pl went to a place called Gilman's Point, uh, not in 30 hours, but 28 hours. So you were doing Wim Hof breathing the whole way? basically the whole way. I mean, we did sleep for like four hours. Um, and then, so you're sleeping, you're not doing it, but then you wake up and you do the breathing again. But yes, it was very constant, very heavy breathing. Although I will note, it sounds like it's a really, really difficult to do. And while it was difficult, as you go up higher in altitude, you know, Achilles, I think about 18,000 feet, um, once you're above like 10,000 feet, the air is much thinner. So it's actually not as much work to breathe fast. Like if you're at sea level or, you know, you and I are at 5,000 feet, roughly, if you breathe, it's, there's a, a certain amount of drag in the air. As you go higher, that's much, much easier. So, so it wasn't quite as bad as you're thinking, but it was still a lot of work. So you're doing this sitting, taking little breaks and doing the breathing or doing it while you're actually walking? while you're walking. And the interesting thing okay. about this is if you do this at, at like sort of an ordinary human altitude, um, you're gonna get super dizzy, right? And you're gonna fall yeah. down and it's gonna be bad for you. But as yeah. you go higher and higher in altitude, there's less available oxygen. So in fact, okay. the heavy breathing is replacing the, the lack of oxygen faster in you. So you breathe you know, less oxygen there, so you breathe harder, so there's more oxygen in your bloodstream. And you could actually, um, test this by using a pulse oximeter, um, where you usually, you and I in a healthy location are like 97 to up to 99%, maybe even 100% oxygen saturation in your blood. And you can just put this little device in your finger to measure in a few seconds. Uh, on Kili and people with altitude sickness, you'll see that pulse oximeter going down to like 70, 50, sometimes even into the 40s. And that's really bad. You don't wanna be in the 40s. Uh, and then, so, so when you're forgetting to breathing, you'll, you'll, the, the world will get a little darker. It'll be like you're wearing sunglasses, even if you're not. Um, you might get a headache, um, joint pain, things like that. Then, and you put the pulse oximeter on, it says 60 or 50. If you suddenly start the breathing really fast, and this could be a life-saving tip for someone who's listening right now, you do that, you'll watch that, that oxygen saturation go right back up into the 90s. This doesn't under 18,000 feet. I, I don't know. Oh, about over okay. 18, <laughs> so when you hyperventilate, you're actually over breathing oxygen, right? So the bond between mm -hmm. CO2 and, and your hemoglobin gets tighter. So why is it that as you're hyperventilating, as you're walking up the mountain, your oxygen, oxygen saturation was actually going down? It would seem like it would all stay in your blood, not get in your tissues. And I could see tissue hypoxia taking place. But would you actually actually see lower oximeter, uh, you know, oximeter readings in your, in your blood. 
You know, John, I'm not a doctor. Um, so uh, when we actually talk about chemical bonds in my blood, uh, you're gonna, I'll just be making shit up. Um, you're a doctor. What I will tell you is that I'm going up the mountain. And then when I hyperventilate, I will see my pulse oximeter. Um, I'll, I'll see a lot more saturation in my blood as I go up. And if I do this now, if I do Wim Hof hyperventilation, I put on a pulse oximeter, you will see higher saturations instead of lower saturations. If you hold your breath, you'll see uh, lower saturations of oxygen. Why that happens, yeah. you know, I'm not a doctor. Um, I, I, yeah. uh, things are happening in my blood and my and my lungs. Yeah, and that's you know, in Ayurveda, that's that's called kumbhak or, or breath holding, as you know. And mm -hmm. and when you hold your breath, your CO2 levels rise. And when the CO2 mm -hmm. levels rise, that's what releases the oxygen from the hemoglobin, and then saturates your tissues. Which is why when you hold your breath, you see those numbers come down. But when you hyperventilate, they should go up. But but. But I was just interesting. I guess when they got sick uh, and they were having altitude sickness, that's when they were just just a mess and crashing and burning, and their oximeters were getting dangerously low. But there is benefit, you know. The whole uh, keeping the oximeter numbers in the 80s is what's called intermittent hypoxia, as you probably mm -hmm. know. And and all the benefits of that that you mm -hmm. get from doing Wim Hof's technique or Ayurvedic breathing with breath holds. Um, sure. where you actually hold your breath and the CO2 levels rise and the oximeter levels come down and then the body, right. you know, all the emergency vehicles, stem cells, APO, you know, mm -hmm. uh, nitric oxide, all these, you know, repair molecules start kicking in and doing this major repair, which makes mm -hmm. me wonder, you know, because here's the thing that, that's, that I'm curious about. You're, you're just a, a regular guy. You make it clear that you're not a super athlete. Wim Hof, you know, when you look at what he does, you, you got to think he's just, you know, a freak of nature. But you were able to do the same thing that blows my mind, like, like, you know, and some of your breath holes, I can't, you know, I've been doing Wim Hof for years and doing breathing for decades. Uh, I can't hold my breath anywhere near as long as you can do it. There's got to be something about you that's special. And so I want to know, are you superhuman? Or is this something that everybody can actually do? Well, I think this is very important to note that neither I nor Wim Hof are superhuman in any way at all. Um, people, there is, and this is a very important cautionary note that you raise. There is a movement out there to say Wim Hof is Superman, that Wim Hof is like some sort of perfect physical specimen. And I will tell you that anyone who spent even 10 minutes with Wim Hof knows this is absolutely not true. He is not like the role model of all human health. Um, he is simply a guy who's able to practice this stuff he might be a little crazy, which is why he learned, he actually decided to do this, but this is totally available to anyone. Uh, you can do it, I can do it. Anyone, you know, anyone into their eighties can do it. And maybe even older than that, kids can do it. Like it seems safe and it seems like something we can access because, and this is really what I set out to prove in my book, What Doesn't Kill Us, is that, you know, is this a magical thing with prana coming down from heaven that's making us all super strong or, is there an evolutionary sort of straight scientific explanation? And, and the truth is uh, that there is, you know, we evolved in these constantly varying environments, right? These environments that, that you know, on the, the plains of Africa, you know, 15, 20, 100,000 years ago when our species was sort of like coming to be, um, you're looking at these huge swings and just daily temperature, whether it's 90 degrees a day and 50 degrees at night, that's still a, 30 degree, 40 degree swing in temperature. And 
look at you now, look at me now. We're, we live at like 72 degrees all year round in our, in our climate controlled environment. We face no real threats. Like when was the last time you were chased by a lion or had to go chase down a deer to eat it? Like, you know, maybe once, maybe that's possible it happened once, but it certainly was not like a monthly thing that you had to go deal with. Um, the thing is, is that we evolved to deal with environmental stresses and, and those environmental stresses were constants. And now that we live in this modern world where all those constants have been sort of like leveled out. So we have these very easy and comfortable lives. Our bodies are not primed to reach their environmental potential. And so what Wim Hof does and what other things that I write about um, also, because Wim Hof is sort of just like one piece of this larger picture that involves Ayurveda, which involves yoga, which involves meditation, which involves extreme sports, which involves like a lot of human activities is that when we create stressful stimuli, we thrive at first. This is what hormesis is. At first you thrive in this stress. If you get too much, you get damaged, but we're not trying to dial it all the way up to damage. We're trying to dial this into the thrive space. And then your body comes to meet that. And then you find that you have these innate human powers that to other people might look pretty superpowery, but are actually just things that you can do. So there's two things you brought up there. I want to talk about the wedge and what exactly that is. And I feel like that's something that you use to, uh, to handle the stress. <clears throat> but the other side of the coin, you know, is the sympathetic parasympathetic balance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how much, you know, Wim Hof's thing is very sympathetic, very fight or flight, very, you know, and then your body responds. But uh, how, much of, uh, how much of that sympathetic stress and is there a way to know how much is good and how much more is bad? Mm -hmm. And where, because the body can get pushed into a level of exhaustion, borrow from Peter to pay Paul, get you know, deeply, adrenally exhausted and a whole bunch of other things can happen. And then from the Ayurvedic perspective, they have a, uh, uh, one of my favorite concepts is the coexistence of opposites, you know, where the mm -hmm. eye of the storm, the bigger the eye, the bigger the calm, the more powerful the wind. So the, so the yep. power, the human potential comes from the calm from the from the accessing parasympathetic activation versus just living in the winds of the storm. And it seems like Wim's gotten away with living in the winds of the storm for all these years. And uh, you figured out a way to live in the winds of the storm, but somehow I think you've accessed into the, obviously you talk about in your, that in your book, The Wedge, that you've, you know, with Brian McKenzie's work about the benefit of the parasympathetic and not losing that. And that comes into nose breathing and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to hear what you say about that. Well, the parasympathetic, which is your um, your rest and digest physiological responses, and then your sympathetic, which is your fight or flight responses, um, these always, they, they exist in connection to one another, right? I mean, you can't really have one without the other, but I will say that in general, the tone of life in the West is generally parasympathetic, in which we are given the stimulus that we get from the outside world triggers mostly only resting um, states in our body. Now we can achieve sympathetic states, right? We can go and seek them out. And occasionally, you know, you're, 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 you're resting, you're resting, you're resting, and then something that triggers a sympathetic state like a car accident or a anxiety inducing email or whatever can push you over into sympathetic. But we are as a society, like almost addicted to parasympathetic, almost addicted to fight to 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 that sort of like down 
um, uh, human state. Uh, although we also suffer from anxiety a lot. And this is because we don't have that correspond. And anxiety is essentially being in a sympathetic tone. So you have these adrenaline and the cortisol and all those things that go along with sympathetic um, activation, but, but not when you're in the physical state. So you're resting, but you're releasing adrenaline. You're resting, but you're releasing cortisol. And that just means your body's getting these mixed messages. Like when you're fighting a lion, you're dumping adrenaline and you're dumping cortisol and you're stabbing that lion or you're probably getting eaten. But like, let's say you didn't get eaten. Let, let you, you fall off that lion. Um, you were supposed to be in a fully sympathetic state. Your body was fighting. It was fleeing, it was doing those things. But when we drop those in the, in the rest state, that's bad because you feel bad. You, know, you feel like you're fighting a lion when you're lying down. You don't want to do that. Um, and so you know, as you're saying in Ayurveda, it's really about a balance between the two. And I will note that Wim, you know, he takes a lot of photos on, on Instagram of himself on icebergs, but he also just hangs out on his couch a lot too. Like, you know, it's about having that contrast between two states. And then when you're in one state or the other, knowing you're there and then living it to the fullest. And that's also really important is that, is that not sending those mixed messages to your body. If you're going to go to full sympathetic, just go, just like, you know, you know, run barefoot in the snow or whatever it is that you're going to do and, and like fully embrace it so that, so that you can actually have those contrasts between that, that, that eye of the storm where everything is really calm and the, the eye wall, which is where the raging winds go. And, and when we have those contrasts, I mean, it's a lot like breathing. Like every, if you think about just the breath, the inhale is your sympathetic nervous system essentially. And the exhale is the parasympathetic system essentially. So they, they absolutely <clears throat> exist in tandem and you're always you know, toggling between the one or the other. Um, uh, and you need to do that to survive. What I'm teaching in the wedge is that 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 just like breathing, something like jumping in the ice bath, that's a sympathetic stimulus, right? There's no one who jumps into an ice bath and says, "This is where resting is." This is what resting is all about, right? You jump into the ice bath and your your body screams at you, and most people will hyperventilate instinctually when they jump into an ice bath. And I actually I have an ice bath in my house, and I love taking people over to their first ice bath because it's so remarkable to watch them freak out. And then you sit there and you're like, no, be calm, you know, take a deep yeah, breath right. in and then exhale slowly. And you can watch this person suddenly take control of what is an autonomic stimulus. And autonomic just means automatic, like just happens, like that hyperventilating just happens. And then they realize that that hyperventilating operates just like breathing. It's something that you can control with a flip of a switch in your mind. And this is what the secret of the wedge is. This is this is like right. the heart of the wedge. It's like inserting intention, I guess you could say, in between that stimulus, which triggers a physiological, primal physiological response. And then you deciding that you don't need to do that, right? Like in the ice bath, which is, you know, ice baths are, are intense, but they're not lethal. Like, I don't know anyone who's died in an ice bath. I mean, if you have a severe heart problem, then we could talk, but I've never known anyone to die in an ice bath or have a seizure or anything. Um, and so it is safe, but your body doesn't say it's safe. So you're just trying to tell mind over matter that no, this is safe. And when you do this, when you do this sort of environmental training, what you realize is that it's not to become a better ice bather, it's to generalize 
that change in your state into any stimulus. Because when you get an email from your tax specialist that your tax bill is $5,000 more than you wanted and your heart starts to, to palpitate, it's not really a life or death situation, right? You're not, you don't have to stab your tax man with a spear. You can, you can deal with that in sort of a different state. And so it's trying to sort of give us the, the physiological responses for ordinary modern world stresses and it's putting things back into balance. And that's what, you know, the wedge talks about ice water, it talks about breath work. We talk about um, facing fears and how, and how to institute fears. I have this kettlebell exercise, but there's lots of other ways to do it too. And also into things like, you know, the, the modern world of psychedelics and the new sort of frontiers about, um, you know, how psychedelic medicines offer you experiences and how you can modulate your responses to those experiences and how those can have radical effects on how your life works, how you respond to things in the world. I thought that was really made. When I read The Wedge, I really felt like I, uh, I really understood Wim Hof's work so much better and the ice baths, you know, going into an ice bath and really, you know, and I heard him say it, you know, and I actually took his mind course too. And, but I just felt like when you were telling it, I really got that you're talking about that, that space between fight or flight and parasympathetic. And you can live in that space. And that's sort of that, that space where you have a choice to go one way or another and to go into an ice bath and actually just, you know, really, you know, not let yourself hyperventilate, even though you want to, and then staying super calm and, and really, really still because any little movement, you know, is colder and, you know, and staying in that, in that, in that real sympathetic calm state, you know, and, I think I read in Wim Hof's book that he would just, you know, dive in the water when he was in the beginning stage, he was going to a lake and just hold his breath and be under there in the fetal position, right? And just stay in there, hmm. in there and, and uh, just stay and, and, um, and somehow not feel that cold. And I just love how you put it together where you really begin to let that sensation drive a different type of neurological response. You call it a, a like an emotional neural signal. I think that it was brilliant how you put that together because I think it's something everybody can put their wrap their head around and actually go, yeah, I can change this experience with my mind right when it's happening. If I put my attention to exactly to where I'm experiencing that signal, right? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating when you think about like, you know, when you start diving into this book, you're really talking about bigger things than just your body, right? You're, you're talking about also these really big philosophical issues that like, what is sensation? Right. What is consciousness? Because, you know, we are just minds and meat sacks and what does that really mean? And one of the things that you know, I've, I've come to understand is that if you have a sensation, and it doesn't matter what it is, really everything you experience is a sensation because it comes in through your peripheral nervous system and goes into your brain and then there's consciousness somehow happens there right and so everything you see everything you hear everything you smell everything out there is a sensation and every sensation that you feel is a choice right it's a choice between what your body autonomically does like your sort of lizard brain the although i think lizards might have choices too like, <coughs> like like something that just reacts to the world and you have that sort of like just straight react um part of your physiology but if you can sense it it means that that sensation is offering you a choice to change your behavior, your mindset, or something about yourself, or else you wouldn't even, you would have, we would have never evolved to sense it in the first place. Now, isn't that interesting? Like, I, like right now you are being bombarded by cosmic rays, right? They are shooting, through, trillions of them are shooting through your body right now, and you can't sense it. And the reason is, is it doesn't offer you any choice. 
right? Cosmic ray issue, whatever it is, there's no choice that you can do there. But if I put my hand on my table and it's hard, well, there's a choice there. I didn't have to hit my table, right? I should not hit hard things. And so that's a choice in there in the future and the fire and cold and everything. Um, you know, talking to your wife about, you know, what you're gonna have to, for dinner tonight. These are all, they all involve series of choices about how you approach the world. And so the sensory system, what we're doing with it, with, with those senses that are hard to describe, like what is it, what does ice water feel like? Well, I can tell you what it, you know, the anxiety it makes someone feel or something, but like cold itself is a sensation and it's not a word, right? It is a sensation that comes in. And that sensation, you know, I write a whole book about how to respond to cold water. And I, and, and I maybe got close to what cold feels like in that book. Um, but your nervous system speaks in sensation, not words, right? So, you know, it speaks in heat, it speaks in cold, it speaks in pain, it speaks in lust, it speaks in like, you know, hundreds of, of these sensations. And it, it only understands the grammar of those exchanges, not the words that we lump on top of it. So what we do with the wedge is we're teaching a new neural grammar um, without words, but with experiences to understand how to rewire the body. And it's, you know, it's, it's a meditation. It's, it's a, the yogis have been doing it for ages. Like it sounds complex, but it's not really, it just sounds complex because words are so hard. No, I, I really love it. You know, there's an aspect of the Vedas called Donner Ved, which is the Donner Asana or the Donner of the bow and the, the you know, the, the martial art of the bow. And when you pull back the bow, uh, the idea from the Vedic perspective is you establish being silence, become more self-aware. And then from that place of self-awareness, you take action. And that's mm -hmm. that point where when you're holding that bowstring and moving it around because you're not still, you're never going to find the arrow. But when you hold it still and then you release it and take action in your life from mm -hmm. that place of stillness, which I really believe is what you talk about in the wedge is that little place between silence and activity, between mm -hmm. consciousness and matter, between quantum field and physiology and you're beginning and you're teaching people how to get to that place and from the vedic perspective you know and from the quantum physics perspective when the field becomes physiology and the physiology forgets that it's part of the field that's what ayurveda calls the cause of disease all disease comes from that lack of memory and i was so fascinated to read your book and i was like you're 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 teaching us how to go to that gap to that junction point mm -hmm. between that place we have a choice what door mm -hmm. you want to walk through, door number one or door number two, mm -hmm. the stressed out, this is freezing cold door or the door, right. you know, and, I, and mm -hmm. the door that allows me to stay calm and stay mm -hmm. in the eye of the storm. I'm experiencing the winds of the storm, but I'm in the eye of the storm, mm -hmm. you know, and, and mm -hmm. uh, when I wrote my first book, Body, Mind and Sport, many years ago, back in the in the 80s, we did research on nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. And we found that when mm -hmm. you breathe through your nose during exercise, we published a study in the International Journal of Neuroscience. And we actually found that when you breathe through the nose, the brain went into an alpha state, a brainwave coherent state. Mm -hmm. The parasympathetic state, instead of going to zero in a stressful situation of exercise, it actually went up 50%. And the sympathetic, instead of going to 100, went down. So we had the two opposite nervous systems oh, coexisting hmm. when, when we were actually nose breathing versus mouth breathing mm -hmm. during exercise. And, mm -hmm. and I was really interested because about, because Wim Hof and, and, and that whole sort of exposure side of things is so kind of contrary to 
how a lot of the, 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 the yogic meditation, Vedic stuff is mm -hmm. taught. Like you meditate your life away. Right. You become so, so still, 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 still. You don't engage in any activity at all. You almost right. re, re, you know, reduce mm -hmm. activity. Mm -hmm. But you, and I'm always like, you guys are crazy. It's established being and then perform action. Take this off the mat. You got to right. do something with this. Otherwise, right. you're not going to get the benefit. But Wim did it the other way. He was like full on fight or flight. I know you said he sits on the couch. But then when I, would, when I read the part about Brian McKenzie and his work where he was saying he didn't see the performance in his athletes on the field with just right. the Wim Hof until he added the nose breathing. And I'd love for you right. to elaborate mm -hmm. on that. Right. So, so it was interesting. Brian McKenzie is this, uh, he, he runs a, a company called Art of Breath. Uh, he is an amazing endurance athlete and trainer out of California. And what when I first met him, and I met him twice, one was for What Doesn't Kill Us and one was for The Wedge, which is the sequel. In the, in the first book, I was saying, you know, look, we both found this Wim Hof breathing, isn't it great? And he was like, yeah, it's so great. We're gonna teach these athletes to hyperventilate and, and, uh, and, perf and to sprint, do some sort of like intensive cardio exercise. And in that hyperventilation, we're gonna realize that they do so much better than they usually do. And lo and behold, they did acutely. So in the moment that they were sprinting, you could sprint a little harder. You could lift a little more weights. You could do like things that required a little bit more power in that moment. And he was like, great. So, so they're hyperventilating and we're going to see them just like kill when they're on the field. And, and when, he saw, when he started looking at long-term data, um, they would get a performance boost in the moment, but it wouldn't compound and actually become long-term gains for them overall. So that was because you're essentially sprinting when you're hyperventilating. You're essentially, you know, the way he says it, he's, you're, you're blowing off the roof of your performance. And, and when you blow off the roof, it's like, it's like, you know, when you're in a, one of those like race cars, you know, those, those, those things, you put the nitrous. Drags, yeah. Yeah, drag car, great. You put the nitrous in it and it goes boom and it flies really fast. But if you do it all the time, your engine dies, right? And, and what he said is like, okay, well, instead of doing the blowing off the roof all the time, Instead, I'm going to train my athletes, and we're talking Olympians here. We're not talking just anybody. These are real, you know, intense dudes and, and ladies. And he says, now in your workouts, your intense cardio workouts, you're going to breathe through your nose only. And the first thing that happens is your performance drops crazy, right? Because you're so used to breathing out of your mouth that you know when you're breathing just through the nose, it's a more restrictive airway. It's more difficult, and then you have to train in that, and then you slowly, 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 painfully, painfully, painfully train your way back up to your old performance levels just breathing through your nose, and then on performance day you switch back to your mouth. And so what you've done is you've raised the floor of your athletic ability, and then in the event hyperventilating, you blew off the roof. And that's where he starts seeing really, really impressive athletic gains in the people that he's training. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is an amazing thing to do if you're trying to achieve some, some uh, really intense athletics. Although I will say, I hate it. I love breathing through my mouth when I ride on a, on a bike and I'm not trying to train to do, <laughs> to compete with Brian. And it's still okay if you want to breathe through your mouth. Just realize that this option is there. And the more you breathe through the nose, the, you know, because breathing through the mouth is this sympathetic activation. The more you breathe through the nose, the more you allow yourself to have a boost if you need it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I used to tell my students, you know, be prepared to suffocate when you start first mm -hmm. learn how to breathe through your nose because that was the whole training technique in body mind and sport was to learn how to breathe through the nose and and uh 
But it's so neat to see that that, you know, because, uh, you know, we obviously proved that we actually measured perceived exertion and during the mouth breathing, they were a 10 out of 10, but during the nose breathing for the same 200 watts of resistance on the bike, they were breathing at a four out of 10. The breath rate went from 48 breaths per minute to 14 breaths per minute breathing through their nose versus breathing through wow. their mouth in our study that we published. So it was like massive differences, um, mm -hmm. but they were, they were, the athletes were trained for six weeks, so they had the ability to do it both ways. I see. So it wasn't yes. just like the first day out of the track, because you're not you're gonna suffocate mm -hmm. the first time. So they were, they were actually skilled at it because it takes a training effect. But it's mm -hmm. so neat to see that, uh, it's just so neat to see that, because that, that, that's what I would tell, tell my athletes, I say, hey, look, you know, I, I was the director of player development for the New Jersey Nets and worked with basketball players to do this as well, which is really intense because it's a sprinting kind of an event. Right. And we put breathe rights on them and got them to do it. And, and a lot of them thought I was crazy. I mean, probably most of them thought I was crazy, but, but uh, we, we did really well. And a lot of the guys stuck with it and definitely during foul shots where they could compose themselves. And they used it as a tool, like a buffet, you know, mm -hmm. when they needed it, they used it and they got a baseline. But it's so neat to see that that's now that, that Mackenzie and, and what you're saying is that they actually prove that that, that that nose breathing baseline creates a level of respiratory efficiency that allows you to then take that to another level when you open your mouth, when you need to open your mouth, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it certainly is the game changer and really every, like just about everyone is talking about this change right now. Um, and it's funny to see how these ideas come back and forth in history, right? Like, you know, just like ice water, which was hugely popular in the forties disappeared for years and years. And that was back. Yeah. And it's the same thing for these nasal breathings. So, you know, if you look at, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot, there are lots of Native American tribes would um, actually pinch the, the infant mouths closed so that they would train people while they're sleeping in order to train nasal breathing. And, the, and Americans are, we're all mouth breathers. We're, we're, we have no discipline when it comes to this. Yeah, and the, the male runners in Central America would put would either put rocks in their mouth or put water in their mm -hmm. mouth and then spit it mm -hmm. out. I made a hundred bucks with one of the, the Nets athletes we were riding our bike up this big hill and he just says, he was like a seven footer. He said, I'm not riding up this. There's no way I could do it. So I made it that I could do it with water in my mouth and bruising my nose the whole way up. And which really wasn't very hard at all, but I did it. And I waited for like 20 minutes for him to get up the hill because I could spit the water out and, and win my bet. But uh, <laughs> it, is an, it, is, it is an effect that, that is a, a training effect. And it is something that, uh, that it, is, it is back. And I tell you what, for me, to read your book and read that about the nose breathing and and uh, you know it's uh, it was neat to see because Wim Hof is you know mostly through the mouth and it was neat to see that the the nose breathing played a part and I think it mm -hmm. it dials in more of that parasympathetic so it's not just fight or flight fight or flight fight or flight which we can overwhelm right. and do that with totally yeah um, you don't want to be in fight or flight all the time I and mean, I think that some people who look at um, you know the, the way you advertise a book or the wedge or anything is you show the most intense part of things, right? You show yeah. me in the ice bath, you show me climbing Kilimanjaro, you show me doing an ayahuasca in Peru, you show these like really intense and essentially all sympathetic things because that's what gets people's attention, which is what you wanna to get to get their attention, to get them to be interested in your book. But the, the fact is, is you're always modulating between the intense thing and the not intense thing because if you do the intense thing, the not intense thing feels so much more satisfying. And uh, and I think this is actually a problem with um, the perception of a lot of these sort of like newer 
books that are coming out, newer techniques are out, is that the, the image presented is all about sympathetic nervous system, right? It all speaks to the sympathetic nervous system. But we're, what we're trying to convey is control in a sympathetic state, is finding that parasympathetic tone in a sympathetic right. state. And it, that's very difficult to actually show in an image because it's something you have to feel. It's something you have to be there to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that coexistence of opposite thing, which is like, you know, one of the golden rules in, in Vedic science. You, you talk also in your book about doing the, um, the float tanks and getting into float tanks, which is completely parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. So talk mm -hmm. to us a little bit about how you found the wedge on the other side of the coin, you know, sure. not from the freezing cold, but from the completely sitting in a relaxed, you know, sensory deprivation tank. Sure. So the question is, uh, at this point in the book, is, you know, we have all of these discussions about external stimulus coming in from the outside world and how you manage to control yourself in the midst of external stimulus. But the question in a flotation tank is where you're minimizing external stimulus as much as possible is to understand what stimulus is coming from inside your body to begin with. And, and when you perceive something from inside your body. The word in neuroscience is, is, is interoception. It means sensing of your breath, sensing of your heartbeat, sensing of your blood pressure, the, the sense of when you look inwards. And what is really fascinating about um, a float tank is you realize is that your body is sending tons of messages out all the time. Like there's all these senses, like the gurgling of your stomach, the creaking of your joints, the beating of your heart, the, 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 the crazy loudness of your breath. And when you quiet the world down to nothing or as close to nothing as we can get, you realize that that cacophony in your body is happening at all times. And actually is your body is sensing that at all times. You're just not you're just consciousness is not quiet enough to understand it. And when you start realizing and start really paying attention to your internal sensations, you realize how that those sensations subtly code your reactions in the real world. And let me break that down into an example. Uh, let's, uh, so I went to a neuroscience science institute in Oklahoma where the guy, guy was using float tanks, Justin Feinstein was using flotation tanks to treat anxiety and PTSD. He found that when you put somebody who was intensely anxious or intensely PTSD in a float tank, that their symptoms relieved with the efficacy of like long-term SSRI, SSRIs, that's like Prozac and that sort of things, um, uh, over the course of 30 days after just one hour long float. And the reason for this, is imagine your prototypical Marine running, you know, is in Afghanistan, you know, doing his Marine things and it's a beautiful Marine day in Afghanistan. And he's hearing there's light sunshine coming on. There's a ni nice breeze. His body is picking up on all of these signals uh, of the world. And then boom, uh, roadside bomb. His body is dead. He's thrown to the ground. His heart is suddenly beating at a million miles a minute. And he hears his heart because, you know, it's so loud, you can't not. And, and this is that, that experience. All of those things that he was sensing from that outside world are now coded in his nervous system. And this is the biology of what we were talking about earlier about neural symbols, which we didn't really get into details. But essentially, all of those sensations are coded in your brain more or less forever. 
Fast forward to six months later, he's in the he's walking to a grocery store and there's a certain quality of light that's actually similar to the quality of light that he had in Afghanistan. And it triggers a panic attack because he's right back there because that earlier sensation was paired with that quality of light and he feels panic or some level of panic. Uh, the same thing is also always going on with his heartbeat. The first time he ever notices his heartbeat is when he's lying on the ground and his buddies are dead and it's a terrible situation. So his heartbeat, which is always going, creates a constant anxiety in his body because he's responding to that subconsciously all the time. Heartbeat means bad. <laughs> That's gonna keep you stuck in your body in a very anxious state all the time. So what happens in the float tank, you cut out the world entirely and you're only looking inside and you're in a situation that's the opposite of an ice water bath, which puts you in a, in a anxious state, right? In a, in a heightened state, a sympathetic state. You're in this state that a, a, a float tank essentially forces you into meditation, right? There's no outside stimulus. And most, most of the time, the float tank just like instantly passes by in your experience. It feels like it's only 15 minutes, but it was like three hours because um, you're forced into meditation almost biologically. Now you're in that state, but you can hear your heart and you're like, oh, now you're pairing the, the, the stillness of that meditative float tank with your heartbeat so that when you get out, you have a new association with your heart, with your breath, with these other things that were that had been reinforcing your PTSD. And that's why those things are so amazing. It, is it lets you look inside, it lets you feel your body and, and really spend time with it in a way that most of us can't because our environment is too loud. Hmm. Like um, meditation on steroids, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it's like autonomic meditation. It forces you into it. Yeah, it made me as you were talking, made me think about COVID. How how in a way has pushed us all into this sort of isolated state. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, has created so much anxiety. Where where you know really just you know really if, if we allowed it to happen and just pulling back the bow and and becoming still and not having all the sensory input which is we don't want to go to the movies, we don't go to the restaurant, all the stuff we did to distract ourselves and kind of please ourselves mm -hmm. in a dopamine reward chemistry temporary way is all gone. And mm -hmm. we have to just live by ourselves. And now we have to go, uh, I don't know how to satisfy myself in, in this in this way. Mm -hmm. Where the flow tank, I think, just puts you, doesn't doesn't leave you in that void. It actually allows you to drop into that place of, you know, real inner stillness and inner calm where you really mm -hmm. are at peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just think that, that tools like that are really necessary for people to realize that there's a there's a world of inner space that that was where that eye of the storm lives. That mm -hmm. if we hail from there, we're weatherproofed from from you know the cold, the hot, but also the need to get loved, appreciated, proof of, stimulated by this X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. so to feel satisfied, whether it be coffee or mo movies or shopping or malls or whatever. All that stuff's been gone, and I think people had a little reality check and go, well, how do I? How do I handle this world now without all of my mm -hmm. stuff, all the things that I did mm -hmm. to keep me busy? You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, COVID has has been a wealth of lessons, both good and bad lessons for all of us. But yeah. it has been very interesting to see like a societal change of state, which we haven't had in a yeah. long time, where the whole society said, "Okay, we're doing something together. We may not like it, but we're doing something more or less together." And you know, it's been sort of like a a global exhale. Uh, which is great for, to our to our long history of inhale uh, that's been coming up before this, and I am 
hoping <laughs> that that there, that we we take positive lessons out of this because we have become more um, inward focused in this. Uh, and I mean, honestly, it's going to feel great when we go back out into the world again with a new perspective. And it, probably it's going to create some anxiety in people at first, uh, but uh, it's also going to we are gonna be able to approach the world from a, you know, a, a more still perspective, I hope. At least the more aware people will. Yeah, I think it's, it's gonna change how we do things. Obviously remote, you know, work and all that, it's gonna change the world in, 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 a, in a permanent indelible way, but uh, it's really interesting. And I think if people were, would get this message and use this, this isolation as an opportunity to really, to really pull back that bow and, and find something that, uh, you know, weatherproof themselves, so they're not dependent on the outside world for their own happiness. It would be a, that would be the great lesson to take away for sure. Um, you also journeyed into the world of ayahuasca, and and I'm mm -hmm. curious about the wedge, and how you were able to in a in a in a situation where you were basically unconscious or out of your own control. How were mm -hmm. you able to find the wedge in that experience? I'd love to hear your story about that. So ayahuasca is. Uh... So, you know, when we think about what the concept of the wedge is, is like you have an external stimulus or a stimulus coming in, uh, and then you are trying to control yourself in that stimulus. And, you know, essentially that stimulus is either puts you in rest state, which is the float tank, or puts you in a heightened state, which is the, uh, you know, the ice bath or these other things I'm doing. And then you're trying to say, okay, well, how do I use those sensations to choose a different path? Now, in a psychedelic um, experience, you know, and I, I flew down to Peru to a town called Iquitos, and I was in the middle of the jungle, like really deep in the Amazon. It wasn't one of these resorts, which in retrospect, a resort would have been fine. But I went to one of these like really deep places. And, uh, and the first thing you need to realize that it's not just the drug. Right, which is this chemical, this mixture that has shamanic roots. It's also the fact that I've been on an airplane for 11 hours. I am. I went from Denver, the urban city of Denver, and the comforts of my home, to the middle of this jungle, which which has totally different stimuli, has no electricity, has no none of the things that I usually rely on. So that 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 just moving from one place to another is already psychedelic. It's something that we don't really think about a lot, but already just changing your space is literally you're in a whole new world. So I'm here, they're also speaking Spanish and my Spanish is bad, but then when you add to this a chemical, which, um, you know, there are, there's a whole shamanic literature that I go into about how the indigenous people think about this chemical, but we can also think of it as like sort of a thing that creates DMT, it gives you a hallucination. And, and what you're doing here is is now that storm isn't only the external world, which is different, but you're also dealing with something internal changing, right? And when you think about a psychedelic, one thing that people think about is the person who goes crazy. That person went crazy on that psychedelic and never became the same again. That happens, I will not lie, people go crazy. <laughs> but you're inviting that craziness into your body, hoping for a lesson. And if you let it, what you do is you sort of like the people who have trouble on psychedelics often are fighting those psychedelics. They're, 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 they, they have these thoughts that come in because the psychedelic creates certain thoughts. And it's almost like talking to like a therapist or like a God, like an external entity is what the experience is like. And then, but it's in you and you're trying to sort of surf that wave internally at the same time you have this external ceremony going around you, which also sort of impacts that. And so what I found with it is that 
all of the anxiety that I had going into it, which is the, you know, the fear of change, fear of going crazy, fear of it, maybe I was going to, going to radically alter my, my life and like, you know, leave my wife and become like a mendicant or something, you know, all of that stuff plays out in the, the trip, all of that baggage I carried, I was now thinking about and facing in this sort of cyclone in my own body and, and trying to navigate and, and coming up with some very sort of profound realizations um, that then you vomit up in an explosive purge because, uh, you know, honestly, ayahuasca is not fun at all. And it's, it's, it was another way for me to sort of experience uh, the, the wedge in an internal way, because I'm trying to find these internal stimuluses, just like I'm trying to find external stimuluses. I'm being a little vague about the exact details of the trip, uh, because it's crazy and it takes me 40 pages to really describe it in the book because if you think that describing what it's like to feel ice water is difficult i promise you to describe an, a, a trip on ayahuasca is a million times more difficult huh. wow wow so so um you know one of the things that um all the research is when I, i've written a lot of articles about the science behind different pranayama techniques and Mm -hmm. And uh, the common denominator of all those techniques, there's probably a handful of them, but one of the ones that stood out for me was neuroplasticity, the ability to change, mm -hmm. the, change the brain. And, and you mentioned how we, we hold on to these emotional stressors called the molecules of emotion that we store deep in our tissues and they're mm -hmm. recorded stress responses that we bring out whenever we, you know, we, we experience a similar kind of a situation, sort of part of our right. survival. And Ayurveda, they say it's written into the white matter of the brain and then the breathing techniques are designed to create a vibration because it's sort of the waxy myelin sheath and it's the breathing techniques and the vibrational techniques were designed to actually change that so we can become more conscious and not actually um, do the same dumb stuff again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of Ayurveda and Veda yoga and breathing wasn't just to be flexible and live healthy and live long. It was to live long so you could have a level of awareness to create, to become conscious, to shed a lot of your emotional patterns of behavior mm -hmm. and be free from these, from these patterns. And I'm wondering if, uh, from the wedge perspective, did you ever tie any of that into, into, you know, sort of the, the psychology of becoming conscious and freeing ourselves from some of these old, you know, from a therapy point of view, from these old patterns of behavior that, mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that launches into anxiety and depression and, mm -hmm. and, you know, that kind of a thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the central part of what the wedge is, of what the, this tool, the wedge, is all about. Is that we're trying to break up patterns, right? And uh, you know, you mentioned vibration. Vibration is not something that I looked at. Um, it's not. It's something that I could have looked at, right? I, I talk about ten different different things in the wedge, and basically, what I'm saying is that this is incredibly insufficient. What I'm presenting you with, um, because there's millions of sensations out there. There's millions of of inputs you can you can have, and every input is an opportunity to express consciousness. And, you know, vibration, you know, since we're using that, right? There's something called shaking medicine. I have a book called Shaking Medicine sure. on, my, on my- Yeah, I read his on, book on too, yeah. From the, um, from the sounds people, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is, you, you create a physical practice that creates physical sensations and then your body responds. Because that physical stuff, that physical 
stimulus does something to your body. And then you also have the ability to bring something to that and you're meeting these two places. And that is really available everywhere. And every time you do this, you, you, you express consciousness, you change the way your body works. Like that's what consciousness is all about. And it's not, it's not something big and mysterious. You know this, like you consciously go to the refrigerator and eat a Twinkie. That changed your physiology, right? It, you you picked something up, you consciously said, hmm, Twinkie, and you ate it, and that changed your physiology. It's the same thing with sound. Oh, I listened to some Led Zeppelin, that made me feel good. Boom, you changed your psychology. Like, like literally the endorphins or whatever else that's associated with Led Zeppelin in your brain um, changed your physiology, which expressed itself in, in, I don't know, physical patterns in the body that that are real. And And, you know, I think that we often think that the body and the mind are truly separate, but they're but the mind is built on a scaffold of the brain matter of the chemical of our physical self. And if there's something in addition to that, I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. Um, it's still that physical scaffolding is super important, and it's always in communication. And and we're like it. it mind over matter is not magic. In fact, it's the most ordinary thing that we could possibly imagine. So, so for, for the folks, for our, for our group listening, would you say that, you know, other than breathing techniques, um, would you say that the shifting from hot and cold is a great way for folks to start and experience this? Like just going from a hot shower to a cold shower, is that like one of the best and quickest, easiest ways to start to experience the wedge? Or what would you suggest? I, I, I mean, I've been doing the Wim Hof method constantly since 2011, and I think that it's a great door into a way to think about this stuff. So hot, cold shower, and then, but it's not just taking the shower, right? The showers are relevant to this. The, the, the thing that you're doing is relaxing in the shower, because that's the wedge, right? You're in the shower, you've turned it to cold, and you went from <gasps> to ah. That's the wedge. And anything that you can do in the world that makes you go, <gasps> and then you go, ah, that's the wedge. That's the wedge. And ice water is a great way to start, right? But it could also be done in breath work. It could also be done talking to your child who's pissing you off. It can also be done, you know, driving down the road. Like, like all of these things are actually physical sensations. And if you pay attention to how you automatically respond to something, and then you insert a little space there, you're practicing the wedge. And, you know, in a way, like, Almost every self-help guru at some point or another says the exact same thing. Yeah, you got to insert space between stimulus and response. And that's what I'm saying. But, but, uh, but and, and in addition, if you focus on the sensations, that's your key, right? And, and ice water is awesome. It's such a predictable sensation. Like as everyone responds to, to ice water out of their lizard brain, and it's pretty standard across everyone. I know what you're going to feel when you go there. And so, yes, do it there, but do it everywhere. Like realize that, that, that we're always in these conversations. And if you find that, that if you're going to a yoga class and that you can come up to a, a moment of resistance where you're in a lot of trouble, which is stressing you out and you realize you can will yourself to relax, that's just as powerful as the ice bath. Right, and, the, and real quick, the, the, there's well-studied physiological benefit. Obviously with cold, you're gonna build some brown fat, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but real quick is, you know, when people start doing this cold shower, what are some of the physiological benefits that, that, that we know is gonna happen to them? Because there's a change, right? There's a measurable change that takes place in your physiology, right? 
The first cold shower won't do anything interesting, honestly. Um, the, the first cold shower, you might have like a, uh, you might, you'll feel more awake. You'll have, um, you'll, you'll have an internal struggle in your body to relax in right. that moment. Uh, but you know, you're, you're not going to see a long-term change from one cold shower. Uh, you, it's like it's like the equivalent of a coffee thing. But if you do this regularly, what happens right. is you you start to establish patterns in your body and your mind, and you realize the cold showers get way easier. And you um, you 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 might end up building a tissue called brown adipose tissue, which is what's called brown fat, which is a metabolic tissue that sucks white fat from your body and burns it as kindling to heat your body. Um, that generally only really becomes an important factor if you get really cold and then you sort of are like sort of need to shiver, right? And, and it's like uncomfortable and it takes you a while to warm up naturally. That's where you really get the brown fat um, thing. I know that there's a lot of like cosmopolitan in vogue and like men's health and stuff. Is it cold shower, brown fat? It's not quite that easy because there's a struggle which also needs to occur for brown fat to get activated. And this is because most of us lose um, brown fat when we're teenagers. Um, you're born with it and then it sort of goes away. So you're sure to have to will it back into existence and it's sort of, it's, it's hard. Um, what I do right now is I, I, I'm fortunate enough to own an ice bath which is like always on and always circulating. It's called a Morozco Forge. It's amazing. And it's always at 34 degrees. And so I jump in there every morning for a minute or two and then warm up slowly uh, throughout the day. Uh, but you know, you sort of need the bath to really get into that. But yeah, get cold and warm up slowly, then you'll get this, um, possibly this BAT. But it's not really important. Like for me, what I think is like, what, what is cool is that you're having, you know, you're forcing your body into vasoconstriction, which means that the peripheral arteries close and shunt blood to the core. And then uh, and then when you warm up, you vasodilate. So you expose, you, you extend those arteries and they, they relax. And that sort of contrast movement is really good for your circulatory system. And there is no way to trigger that without temperature um, movements. Like I can't think, and Wim can't think his hand to vasoconstrict. He has to put it in ice water. And you do too, if you want to experience that. And if you've never experienced putting your hand into very cold water, and to see it go red or white, depending on what your physiology is doing, uh, you've never vasoconstricted. And that means that that circulatory system is unexercised because it's muscles that do that. And you've never exercised those muscles. Right. Do we so know just, if the immune benefits are, are if, the, if the immune benefits are from the cold or the breathing or both? Has anybody just done the cold and got those immune benefits? Or do we know, or do you know? Uh, it's understudied. Uh, there have been two studies that I'm aware of. I know that there's one more um, study ongoing about it. Um, and we know that someone practicing the Wim Hof method is able to, to suppress their immune response when somebody injects a toxin into their body, which should provoke an immune response, right? It's endotox, it's called endotoxin. It's basically dead E. coli. It goes into your veins. And usually you get a fever and achy, achy stuff and like normal flu-like symptoms. Um, but if someone does the Wim Hof method, they don't have that reaction in general. Um, uh, it, it's like the most elaborate wedge technique in the whole world. Um, and 
what I know personally is I've had a very minor autoimmune illness basically my whole life, which was a canker sores, which are these like mouth ulcers that for me, for whatever reason, they're really big. Like they got as big as a dime in my mouth and I get them about every two weeks. Oh, when I, yeah, yeah, they were terrible. Um, when I started doing the Wim Hof method, uh, they basically vanished. Like I never really got them again. Sometimes I'll get the prodromal stage, which means like the, the initial, you know, you, I sort of know one's coming on, right? The very early stage. And then I double down on my breath work and my cold exposure and they never materialize into like full cankers now. And uh, so I know that for me, it has had an autoimmune change because those are autoimmune in their origin. And I've also met many, many people who anecdotally uh, anecdotally have, you know, suppressed Crohn's disease, arthritis, lupus, Lyme disease, and all those things. And, uh, and it's so promising. It's so amazing. And I believe it absolutely fully that this stuff works. Um, but as for intensive gold standard medical studies, uh, there's no one investing in that sort of research right now. Not in any sort of way that a pharma company would be like, hey, forget pills, let's go for ice water, right? Nothing like that's going on at the moment. Yeah. Well, Scott, um, I'm going to let you go. I know you're editing a book. You want to share with us what your next project is real quick? or? Sure. Um, so the next book that I have coming out is called The Vortex. And it's not about Sedona. It's about um, the 1970 Bola cyclone that killed half a million people when it landed uh, and then started a genocide, a war, refugee movement, and almost brought the United States and the USSR into nuclear conflict. So it's this very different book than what I've been, than what people are familiar with that I write about. Uh, but it's going to be amazing because the entire thing is an allegory for what we're facing with climate change. Uh, it looks at a dictatorial president who tried to flip an election to his favor, uh, which you know there might be an allegory there too. I mean, it's it's a. I mean, this book is really exciting, but it's very different than uh, these. these uh, uh, going back to some of your original work as an investigative journalist again, huh? Right. Yeah. My first book was on organ trafficking, where I travel around the world and I found people who bought and sold human body parts. Um, yeah. And it's real. It really does happen. It's just not the way you think it happens. And, uh, yeah. and so this is like a really just um, intense uh, uh, book about um, a, a political weather event that, that most of us have forgotten. Wow. Amazing. What a, what a life, you know, Scott, um, everybody, the book called The Wedge, definitely pick it up. I highly recommend it. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. I'll definitely read The Vortex. That sounds incredible. And uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. You bet. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.